Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of SVU, Allison and I retire to a Victorian ladies' tea room to take in some harp music and have a debate about gender roles as we discuss Anna Biller's The Love Witch. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And in honor of The Love Witch, I propose we devote this episode to eye makeup in movies, complete with supplementary tutorials. But Matt, though you're someone that, having formerly been on-air talent, was very familiar with foundation, yes, you could not control your instinctive blinking whenever I only mildly threateningly approached you with a felt-tip eyeliner. And you know, the results were just not love witch-worthy. So instead, we'll be talking about Technicolor, that highly saturated color process that so defined what color film looked like when it first became mainstream, and that the love witch makes gestures toward. But first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Matt, it's your turn to take this on. What have you got for us? I thought you, I thought you were going to go with that I had had uh, eyeshadow permanently tattooed on my eyelids or something. I don't know if I'd recommend that for eyeshadow, but certainly eyeliner. Oh, Everyone that, benefits oh that's the eyeliner. way to do it. Okay. See, I mean, you don't showing com- how little I know you about makeup. You don't want to commit to one color of permanent eyeshadow. That's a good point. That's a good point. Unless it's blue, a la The Love Witch. Yes. The, the eyeshadow in this, we don't want to spoil it, but the eyeshadow is pretty spectacular awesome. in The Love Witch. Okay. Well, opening break. Uh, I've got three uh, uh, Oscar nominees and or winners this time. And I hadn't thought of this until just now, but I think this movie, although it would be an eclectic combination, would make a good double feature in some ways with The Love Witch. It is The Salesman, the latest film from Iranian director Asghar Farhadi and last year's winner for the Best Foreign Language Film Academy Award. It is about a married couple of actors who are currently preparing a production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. They move into a new apartment, and on one of their first nights there, while the husband is out, the wife is assaulted in the shower, and the rest of the film deals with the fallout of this act, which drives a wedge between the couple. And if you have enjoyed Asghar Farhadi's other movies, and I certainly have, like A Separation and The Past and About Ellie, it is hard to imagine you would not like this one, or perhaps love this one as well. Um, like all those other films I mentioned, it is about relationships, 
uh, how traumas can linger over time. I thought The Salesman in particular was also a really interesting look at modern Iran and class without spoiling too much about the film and what happens after this attack, the search for the attacker. Um, it kind of brings up these comparisons between the actor, the the attacker, and Willie Loman, the main character of Death in a Salesman. The movie is also haunted by this character that we don't see, mm-hmm. who is the former tenant of yes. the apartment, in a way that is fascinating. That's right. That's right. And that was going to bring me to the other thing that's really interesting about the movie and where it sort of connects with the love, which, which is gender, the idea about gender roles in society. And here we, I mean, it's set in Iran, so it's a different society, but just we get to see what happens when something like this attack, this incident happens and in, in this world where, you know, a woman accusing a man of assault could potentially get her in as much trouble or maybe more trouble than the man who uh, attacked her. So all that stuff is there. It's, it, you know, it, it, I'm maybe making it sound like more of a message movie than it is. It's, a, it's an incredibly sort of suspenseful, low-key domestic drama. And, it you know, that's what Asghar Farhadi makes. He just makes them really smartly with all these really in- – intelligent ideas in the background. So I really liked it. You know, I, I, I was happy to see it win, although I did love Tony Erdman more if Tony Erdman was going to have to lose the, the Oscar for foreign language film. There are worse movies to lose to than The Salesman. I thought it was and, a great, great movie. Certainly in the year, given what happened with The Salesman, yes. it, there was a lot of meaning and impact attached. Absolutely. To but beyond that alone, it's a good movie. Uh, so that's The Salesman. It's available on VOD starting on May 2nd. Available now on VOD is La La Land, which, as is my understanding, because I turned off my television immediately after the announcement of the final award and have been living in a cave in the mountains ever since, <laughs> won the Best Picture Oscar last year. What's that? Didn't win. Oh. It wasn't the winner. Oh, my. Well, it didn't win Best Picture, but I still think that this film was a very, very worthwhile experience. I really enjoyed it as this beautiful tribute to old school musicals set in contemporary Los Angeles, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone as a jazz pianist, have to be careful how you say that word, and an actress chasing their respective dreams and falling in love over the course of a year. The movie was like rapturously received at the Toronto Film Festival, but... By the time awards voting, it it seemed to have encountered a pretty heavy backlash. Some of it I thought was valid. Some of it I found kind of off base. Um, And I think that it is if you if you missed it, if by the time it was playing by you, you were like, oh, I've read all these articles telling me that it's, you know, not good or it's this or that. I would say check it out for yourself. I thought it was an incredibly well-directed movie by Damien Chazelle. In the use of the camera, editing, choreography, color. I thought the use of color in the film, although sort of obvious, was almost not really written about, examined. I think the sort of underlying political or social ideas within it, or maybe the lack thereof in some people's mind, became all that people wrote about. And they sort of ignored the really interesting technical stuff. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I wrote a long piece about this. If you want to find it on Screen Crush about the back, I tried to start the backlash to the backlash. So you can read. It's mostly just about why I like the movie. But um, yeah, I think it's worth checking out. Gives you plenty to chew over. Uh, it may not be just as black or white, no pun intended, as some people uh, believed it was. So that is La La Land. It is available now on VOD. And finally. Also available on May 2nd, so you've got some big movies coming out on May 2nd on VOD. I've got The Red Turtle, another Oscar nominee, this one for Best Animated Feature. 
comes from Studio Ghibli and Dutch director Michael Dudek de Witt, a wordless film, no dialogue in this film, about a man who becomes shipwrecked on a desert island and meets a giant red turtle. Allison, did you see this one? I did see this one. Anything else we need to add about the red turtle? I, I, I haven't seen it. I just saw trailers. As, it looked beautiful. It is beautiful. It is the most poetic movie. I don't consider this a spoiler because it happens like not that far into the movie. It's the most beautiful movie to contain what is basically bestiality I've ever seen. All right. <laughs> I can't think of a better recommendation there than that. You go. There you go. That is The Red Turtle, available on May 2nd. You sound as if you've been brainwashed by the patriarchy. Your whole self-worth is wrapped up in pleasing a man. I'll admit, I used sex to get this, but I'm not proud of it. The whole world doesn't revolve around a man's needs. If I gave Richard sex every time he wanted it, I'd be a wreck. Poor Richard. He loves you, and he wants you, and you torture him. You have to give a man his fantasy. (laughs) His fantasy? Yes, his fantasy. What I'm really interested in is love. You might say I'm addicted to love. I wonder if all women feel that way. Here on Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose the film, or occasionally the TV series, that we discuss as our main review. And on our last episode, we gave you a mix of recent movies. Barbershop, The Next Cut on Amazon and Hulu, the latest, should we call it? Longquill to come out in theaters. This one uh, for the Ice Cube-led ensemble series, which apparently took on Chicago's gun violence in this new installment. Then there was The Love Witch, which is on Amazon, Anna Biller's stylistic throwback about a witch's deadly attempts to find love. And finally, Tower on Netflix, Keith Maitland's animated documentary about the 1966 shootings at UT Austin. And The Love Witch left the other two movies looking longingly as it passed them by with over 55% of the vote. The Love Witch is, as the title implies, about a witch named Elaine, played by Samantha Robinson, who attempts to leave a troubled and abused past behind, including a dead husband she may have murdered, as she moves to a small Northern California town. She rents a really fabulously, if intensely decorated room from a friend of a friend named Trish, played by Laura Waddell, and starts selling goods at a local store and in general seems to be successfully starting over. But what she really wants, or at least claims to want more than anything, is true love. And while her magic enhanced seduction techniques net her a string of lovers, she finds their subsequent obsession with her boring, even when their feelings for her kill them. The Love Witch is Annabella's second film. Her first, uh, the 2007 film Viva, was a tribute to the sexploitation genre of the 60s. The Love Witch is also a film that makes use of a throwback film style. Its colors and lighting evoke the Technicolor era. Its costuming and makeup are gloriously 60s and 70s, even though the film is set in the present day. Its setting makes gestures towards Hitchcock. It is, in some ways, a film geek's dream. And in true argumentative film geek fashion, if you check Biller's Twitter account 
or read interviews with her, you can find her debating her influences and intent in making the movie versus the ones that critics have cited in writing about it. She's been adamant in particular that people who see references to Mario Bava or Russ Meyer in her work are very wrong. Okay. On Twitter, she eventually released a statement that concluded with her saying, quote, If I could have one wish, it would be for people to stop talking about it as a pastiche, parody, homage, or a simulacrum of a 60s movie and start talking about it as just a movie. So my question to you, Matt, is this. Certainly, Biller is as free to defend her film as critics and audience members are to see whatever they see in it. But is her final plea even possible? Can the Love Witch be discussed without seeing it through the filter of its seeming influences? I don't think so. It's a very interesting to read that statement. I, you know, I don't follow her on Twitter, and I hadn't really read a ton about the movie um, other than just knowing basically what it was. But, I mean, if you want to make a modern-day movie about modern-day things and not have it be compared to older things... Now, some of those specific you know, uh, comparisons you could debate. But to say that it, it doesn't recall older movies, I think is kind of, uh, I, don't, I, I don't get how you could do that. It's, you made a movie that's very clearly designed to look, you know, kind of retro and old-fashioned. And if it wasn't for occasional shots of, like, modern cars in the background, which I presume are just still there mostly because it would probably would have been too expensive or difficult to get rid of them or to shoot around them, you would assume this was set in 1965 or something. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And certainly the movie does have very interesting ideas in it that relate to modern issues, modern society. But I, 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 when you read that statement, honestly, I was a little shocked. I, yes, I, I think it's an, it, I've, I've, I don't follow her on Twitter either, but I've read through a lot of her, like sometimes very pugnacious exchanges with critics or with people who, who have written about the movie. Uh, I can understand frustration if you constantly read people saying maybe that your movie is influenced by Jalo, you know, right. and you're like, no, that wasn't even on my well, mind. I didn't get a I lot of it. I didn't get I, a lot of Jalo in this either, movie, but I think that that's one of those those ideas that then spreads like a virus because people read it, right? And then they, they haven't actually it. seen a lot of Jalo exactly. movies, and they want to sound like they know what they're talking exactly. about, and so they just sort of cite it. Cite yes, it. yes, yes. And the same with Russ Meyer. I don't think that this really recalls Russ Meyer at all, but I not think that. I mean, the cheesecakey nature of it, mm-hmm. um, where there's a lot of sort of glimpses of nudity, but not a lot of like actual nudity, but plenty of like titillation and sex. Yes, the visual style of it, no, does not, not does not look like a Russ Meyer yeah, movie. Yeah, and certainly Russ Meyer doesn't own titillation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, he does not. Not at this day and age. Yeah, but certainly so, not. I, I mean, I can certainly understand how that would seem frustrating to see these things crop up again and again. That sure. said, that said, I mean, certainly this feels like a movie that is hugely influenced you know like it chooses and i don't think that biller is denying that her film is supposed to be retro but it it is really difficult to not think of it as being an active engagement with right commenting on these older movies yes so i don't know i don't know what to do with that i don't know either and also i i feel like in the end once you put your movie out there right people are going to talk about it however they kind of see fit yes there's no which I'm sure she is well aware of. Of course. No I mean, that. my reaction is basically, this is why, while it's, it can also often be very interesting and very illuminating to read a director's in, you know, thoughts on their movie, their intent, what they were trying to see, sometimes you might be trying to make something, and that's not necessarily what people are going to see in it. Like, you, your reaction, 
is valid just because the director says, oh, that wasn't what I was going for. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not in there. Right. Yeah. So all that being said, I I do. I love the look of this movie. It's gorgeous. It's incredibly gorgeous. Like the color scheme is gorgeous. The costumes. The costumes. The makeup. makeup, Hair. The frequent like, especially the makeup, like there are many kind of close-ups of eyes and lips that just emphasize like the beauty of of this like intense makeup that's been put on these characters, Uh, especially Elaine, the main character. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really beautifully styled Mm -hmm. in that way. Yes. And, and, And in a way that I think also reminds you of the degree to which in in like naturalistic movies set in the modern day that it how how like little we have that pleasure a lot of the time mm-hmm. you know like it's even even side characters are are kind of all done up in this i you know we mentioned the victorian tea room <laughs> which i just i love it is such a ridiculous uh wonderful like uh imagine player everyone dressed up everyone eating cake and drinking tea i adore that yes it's just like how you know if it's like if everyone just went to the plaza for tea every day like that was going to starbucks and that you were required to wear dress and dress up yeah incredibly dressed up and i do want to say you know you already mentioned the the costuming and the makeup and everything like how much of this, like, what Anna Biller, like, in the credit, like, okay, she directed it. She also edited it. She was also the costume designer, production designer. Like, she did everything. She wrote it. She produced it. She worked on the music. Like, I just, I give her a lot of credit for how hands-on and how much of this is uh, her, you know, her work. And maybe that's why she's so, gets so pissed off when people are like, boy, it looks like Russ Meyer or whatever. It's like, I did. Ev- not only is it my vision, I really did everything. I didn't just direct it. I worked on the costumes and the lighting and the music. And like, so maybe that's why there's an extra sense of ownership and a rejection of people trying to give credit to other filmmakers. I don't know. That that would be, I think that's maybe, uh, that could be one possible explanation. And I think I kind of get it too, because if I did all that, I wouldn't want to be giving away the credit to some Right, old guys all, who are around, right? Yeah. yeah, from forty, fifty years ago. I, I guess that's fair. I will say, as much as I enjoyed lo- uh, looking at the movie, and I did, and this is something I think we're going to have to talk about more in the next segment. I did feel like I was missing something visually on streaming um, that I had. I hadn't obviously. I didn't see the movie in the theater. This was the first time I seen it, but I did see the trailer for this movie in thirty five the thirty five millimeter trailer because this movie was shot on film, and it looked so incredible. And it still looks beautiful on my on the on the computer on your your HD TV. However, you're going to watch it at home. But I don't think that the the streaming platform really can recreate the full experience of that rich, especially when you're trying to recreate old Technicolor, like the really rich celluloid color experience. I didn't quite feel like, I felt like watching it, that it it it, it lost some of like the depth, the richness. Maybe I'm crazy, but I didn't think I was getting the experience visually I would have gotten if I had gotten to see it in a theater on 35 millimeters. Well, and certainly with something that is this visual that you you feel you're missing something even from like the the scope of the screen and being able to be immersed in it. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I don't think that this is the kind of movie that like you can go from streaming 
uh, from seeing in a theater to streaming without losing a lot. I do feel like it is diminished a bit by a smaller screen and by right. and by the streaming experience. That said, it was certainly also for a movie that is, I mean, the style of this movie is not just to be pleasurable. It is about a character who is very aware of her, how she presents herself and of male gaze mm-hmm. and of being alluring. Like that is a, an ongoing theme is how she has basically uh, learned to to present herself in a way that uh, in order to attract men that she then sort of murders <laughs> or sometimes directly. I was going to say sort of might be. Uh, yes. Some of them just die. Some from of longing. <laughs> I guess that's true. You're 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 correct. There's a variable range of death to murder here in the film on display. You're right. Um, yeah, that's yeah. You're everything you're saying is true. I as much as I enjoyed um, looking at this movie, I did think. That it, it and and as interesting as these ideas are, that the ideas it's getting uh, to about gender and 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 sexuality and all those sorts of things, it did. I did feel like it was maybe a little long. I don't know that I feel that it was long so much as I just feel like there's distance inherent to it. Maybe like it's, that's you know, maybe I that's think what that, it like, is. It's it is more uh, an ex- an aesthetic experience and a kind of uh, almost didactic experience at times. Yes, that's than a good it word. Then it is one where you feel invested in yes. characters. It does feel a little academic. And I don't mean that like by the numbers. I mean like it's like a, almost like an essay about these the movies that it's sort of in, in dialogue with in movie form. And about, I would say, I mean, Elaine as a character, it feels at times like she's been driven mad by post-feminism, right? right. By like the contradictions inherent in in wanting to be empowered but also uh, you know like at at one point you know she she uh there's like a flashback i think or maybe she's just at with her friend who is a witch and who talks about you know we need to teach men how to love us using ways they can understand you know use perfume wear high heels and makeup uh you know, be a mother and lover, stand your ground, but always let the man feel like a man. And you can understand, like, especially when you start to understand Elaine's backstory, that how she is basically trying to fit these contradictions together. Right. And and not, and like the result is something she has basically been driven insane. Yes. Uh, you're No, you're absolutely right. And uh, that's a very fair point. But I did, I did, I have, like, having said all that, I did sort of, it did feel a little dry to me. Yeah, um, I agree. And especially, I mean, again, that's almost certainly by design, but when you're sort of commenting on these very lurid, pulpy films, and the film itself, you know, it feels a little dry and academic. It's sort of a, I mean, it's sort of an interesting contrast, but in some ways it's also, at least to me, was a little bit frustrating, where I, I it was almost like I admired the movie more than I enjoyed it by the end. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that that's, I, I think that it is so ambitious and it tries to do things that I think, especially for an indie movie that it, this clearly is, it, it tries to do things both visually and thematically that almost no one reaches for anymore. Right. I admire that a lot. I don't think that as an experience watching it, it, it was certainly not one of my favorite movies of the year. I think it does. It holds you at a distance right. and makes you very aware of what it's tackling. I will say I really liked uh, Samantha Robinson as Elaine, as the love witch. Don't know what else she's done, where else I've seen her. And in a way, I think that helps the movie because she seems to have come out of this strange... She She exists so completely in this strange, surreal world of the film. 
and she, you know, she's both sort of very beautiful, but she has that, you know, she's so carefully composed that there's something sort of almost terrifying about it as well. The way that this character sort of exists. And as you said, has to like navigate these contradictions of who is she supposed to be and how am I supposed to uh, find true love? And once I find it, why do I, why am I so uninterested in these pathetic loser dudes? I, I, I did think she was holding at what, what, emotional resonance the film has i thought it was all because of her right well especially having someone who uh you know says she's after one thing she says she's after true love and the more the movie goes on the more you sort of feel like yes maybe but also it's sort of a revenge quest Mm. you know that like she what she is actually doing with most of these men is pulling them in and then just like discarding them as cruelly and indifferently as possible and she defends her right to do that you know towards the end but that it doesn't feel like it is necessarily a quest for true love, even in her kind of like warped imagining of it. Mm-hmm. And so much as it is uh, just a rampage. Right. I did feel too like the, that the style of the movie did work nicely with her and all the things you're saying. And just that she has sort of this cockeyed view of the world. And that's been sort of, she's as we're, as it goes along, we see sort of how kind of traumatized she has been by this past father and her marriage yeah Yeah. there's all these things and so that you you know this that it's sort of like tilted her off her axis which gives us this very lurid world i thought that the visual style wasn't just beautiful to look at that it fit perfectly with this character and her very kind of garish uh the way she composes herself i thought that again that that sort of all of that fit together very nicely so you brought up la la land before Uh, yes what how do you think that this this film kind of fits in in terms of its relationship with the past with something like La La Land, which Mm. is an homage, but also is set in the present day and tries to use visual language that we don't necessarily find frequently anymore. Mm -hmm. How do you see this comparing to what La La Land tries to do? That's an interesting comparison. I feel like the difference is that in La La Land, the, the characters felt more real and sort of like there's the stakes felt a little more, life and death even though there's actual life and death going on in in the love witch again like the like the the comparison to some sort of like academic essay or almost like a visual like a video essay you would watch on youtube about like cirque and uh, Mm, and 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 the male gaze and the all those sorts of things but sort of transmuted in a weird way into a narrative so that would that would be the the main difference that i would find it is an interesting comparison because they're they are both sort of so indebted to old movies and in some ways similar movies too and similar visual styles as well all right well then one final question yes blue eyeshadow or purple eyeshadow oh that is that's a good question i feel like the the answer has to be blue just because she spends most of the movie in blue yes and i i i don't know i don't know why Anna Biller chose that, but I have to assume she just thought it looked better. I think it's also like it's there's something very of a particular era of like heavy blue eyeshadow, but okay. it looks incredible on her. I it looks like. stunning. Yeah. I mean, they, she, uh, the, she looks good in both. Yes, and both are very striking, but the blue is more striking. Yes, absolutely. It's it's pretty awesome. The, the, yes, it is. If I was a woman, I would definitely wear blue wear eyeshadow, heavy, heavy blue <laughs> like eyeshadow, just take like a, and a, a good, large like hour and in a the big morning wig, a hair piece, a yes, hair piece yes. to enhance uh, my eyelashes. follicle beauty. Yes, her whole look—it's a good look. It's gorgeous. She looks gorgeous. It's it's, it's just very it's a little over the top and outrageous, but it it's it's working for her. I could see I could see myself being 
seduced in horrible ways by the love witch <laughs> all right well that is the love witch and it is streaming on amazon prime raven hair and ruby lips sparks fly from her fingertips echoed voices in the night she's a restless spirit on an endless flight Well, I guess we agree with Anna Biller to some extent about her influences or her non-influences because our podcast is not about Jalo films. It's not about Russ Meyer films. It's about Technicolor. And we thought we would start with just a little bit of background. I mean, I think everyone knows the term Technicolor, but maybe we don't necessarily know what exactly that is. It was this company. Actually, the company is still around. But um, I think when people say Technicolor now... They're specifically thinking of a certain period of time and a certain specific Technicolor process, the three-strip Technicolor process. There were different Technicolor cameras and color processes throughout the decades in Hollywood, but the one that became the most famous and the one that I think is today most remembered, or when people say in Technicolor, they're usually referring to what's called the three-strip Technicolor process. That was in use from the early 1930s to the mid-1950s, and it's three-strip Technicolor because there was literally three strips of film in the camera, all running and recording simultaneously, each getting a different part of the color spectrum. And so when you combine the three strips together, you get the full range of color. And the cameras themselves, because they had to have three strips in them, they were very big, they were very heavy, they were hard to use, so they were limiting in some ways. And because you were using these cameras to record onto three separate strips of film, you were essentially dividing the light three times, which meant you needed a lot of light on the set to record, which made the sets incredibly hot. So it was also, I hope I'm impressing upon you how difficult <laughs> it was to shoot in Technicolor. You also had to change film stock when you would change film stock you had to change it three times three times yeah you also had to buy three times as much film stock this was not a cheap process it was not cheap and it was not easy to use but i think the results spoke for themselves you know if you aren't that familiar with three strip technicolor if you haven't seen it um you know what it's known for is kind of like the love witch these beautiful lurid colors very deep very rich very bright and um, it could do a lot of things, but I think the, again, the sort of when you say Technicolor, what you think of or what most people think of is like The Love Witch, something that looks slightly surreal, more than real life. It's so saturated. Very yeah. saturated, very bright, very hyper real. Um, so, and that tends to involve musicals and cartoons, but there were Westerns in Technicolor. There were biopics. There were even some film noirs in Technicolor. Yeah. So it was, it was a, you know, it, it, it was, it didn't have to be just one thing, but I think over time what it has 
become is sort of that specific look, that specific thing. Maybe because that was what Technicolor was best at producing, perhaps. you have anything else you want to add about Technicolor in general? No, other than I, can, I feel like I can go into my first film. Why don't you do that? Then? Uh, something I often think about with regard to Technicolor mm-hmm. is that audiences went from watching things in black and white, which was kind of an inherent, inherently stylized, uh, to watching things in a color that was in its own way just as stylized. It was brighter and richer than real life. It was bolder. And so I... I it's interesting to look at movies that use both and that use color as an effect. Uh, most famously, The Wizard of Oz, of course, Dorothy Gale going from her mundane black and white life in Kansas to traipsing down the brilliantly yellow, yellow brick road in Oz. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about uh, another film from that era, from 1939, uh, that reversed that ratio. Instead of being mostly in color with a splash of silvery black and white, it was the opposite. And that film is The Women, George Cooker's uh, adaptation of the Claire Booth Luce play about Manhattan society wives with an entirely female cast. The women of the women are, for the most part, very privileged, or in the case of the frequently scheming mistresses, including the one played deliciously by Joan Crawford, aspiring to be privileged. And yet they often feel very trapped in their roles. Uh, You know, in the not particularly good 2008 remake (laughs) a lot of the backstabbing between these supposed friends was softened or mitigated particularly between the central character mary who's played by meg ryan in the remake and norma shearer in the original and her supposed friend sylvie or sylvia who's played by annette benning in the remake and the great rosalind russell in the original as the frenemy to end all frenemies (laughs) Um, because it always seemed to me that the cattiness of the original while satirical also spoke to the boredom and the relative powerlessness of these very prominent lives. Mm. You know, there's this almost Jane Austen quality to these biting exchanges and the setups in which all these women talk about love, but really often mean economic security. Uh, And the black and white creates this neat shorthand for the claustrophobia of these lives. These women are constantly going from like lunches to parties to the salon that is a major location or to Reno to get a quickie divorce and always with the same people. It's like they cannot even escape this tiny social circle. Uh, So the maybe 10 minutes of color, which take place at a fashion show and emphasize the series of wonderful and sometimes very avant-garde outfits from Adrian, the famous costume designer, represent this moment of escape from the characters. We are there with them as they they kind of go out, like drift away for a second and then disappear into these fantasies in which models kind of strut through representations of life at the beach or playing tennis or having a picnic, this very uncomplicated fantasy of life. It's this beautiful, totally odd sequence. The movie stops, you know, and turns to color for a fashion show, for like 10 minutes of a fashion show in brighter-than-life color. It's a scene that was for a while cut uh, when the movie was screened. And I think that the fact that it's been restored is really important because it's... The contrast between this bright fantasy of life, of ease, and then the moment afterwards in which the women go on to decide which of the outfits they're going to buy, and there's this like direct correlation there to how often they're being taken out by their husbands and need the outfits, who's going to see them in it, how much the men in their life want to spend on them, are willing to spend on them. It's basically an assessment of their social standing, and it is entirely dependent on their relationship with their relationships with these men who are never seen on screen, right? Like these mm-hmm. women kind of like 
push and pull each other over them. But like there's a precariousness to their situation. Uh, it's, it's like they're always in danger of being taken away from them if they do not constantly keep themselves up and appealing and chase away other women from their men. So I, it's, it's a bit of color that has always really stood out to me, uh, in particular because it's so, it's so kind of jarring and beautiful. Uh, that is The Women, and it is available for rent. So you're recommending the 2008 film, right? <laughs> Definitely I never, remember, never look at the 2008 I remember film. seeing that one in, <laughs> in the good. theater, thinking this is a masterpiece. I can't wait for Allison to recommend it <laughs> in seven years on the podcast. Um, I don't know that I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen the version of that, of the women with the color sequence, but that's very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of sounds like wizard of Oz, like the playing, you know, between black and white and color, but it's also, it has, uh, the, the scene, it's like a fashion sequence, but it also feels almost like, a like when there's a dance number, right. You know, it, it, it's like this pause. It's a cinema of attractions kind of moment sort of thing. Yeah. It sounds very interesting. I, I, I have to rewatch the women. Uh, for my first pick, I decided I wanted to do a musical because that is, you know, I do when my mental image, when I think first thoughts of Technicolor is a musical, something like Singing in the Rain or The Bandwagon, but I wanted to do something I hadn't seen before. So I picked Take Me Out to the Ball Game, directed by Busby Berkeley, made in 1949, the glory days of Technicolor musicals. Uh, the film is about a pair of baseball players. Uh, it's set around the turn of the 20th century at a time when major leaguers did not make the sort of money they make nowadays. And so they would do jobs in the off season to make ends meet. And these particular gentlemen, Ryan, played by Frank Sinatra, and O'Brien, played by Gene Kelly, work in vaudeville, which is a very convenient excuse for musical numbers. And this was actually the first of two movies Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra made together in 1949. A few months later, they went on to co-star in the more successful, more famous, and frankly better movie, On the Town. Uh, but Take Me Out to the Ball Game is a lot of fun, too. I enjoyed watching it. It has some great numbers, including the title song, which is, you know, you've everyone knows, but in this version is sort of this big vaudeville routine with uh, Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly tap dancing. And there's uh, another fun number, O'Brien to Ryan to Goldberg played by Goldberg is played by Jules Munchen, where they sing about the greatness of their team's double play combination of Brian to Ryan Goldberg. And there's this one. Um, yes, indeedy, which is the first song that the two guys sing when they return to the team following their, um, their, their uh, vaudeville off season, where they're bragging about their sexual conquests all over the country, frankly, which is, this song, one, would never fly today. Two, I can't believe it, it flew in 1949 with the censors, some of what they're talking about or intimating, um, because this was also the, the golden era of the production code in addition to being the, the, the golden era of Technicolor. And I, I really enjoyed that number in particular. If you want to find that one, I'm sure if you just typed in, yes, indeedy, take me out to the ball game, I, I'm sure you could find it on YouTube. But be prepared for what you're going to find. Uh, the love interest in the film is played by Esther Williams, who is famous for uh, – I, I don't know what if they have a specific name. These sort of very strange 
movies that were like water bound musicals. Bathing Beauty movies. Bathing Beauty movies. I, I mean, guess. yeah, I'm not sure what they she would call the, the Bathing Beauty. Right. right. That yeah. was her thing. Instead of dancing, they were these like elaborate synchronized swimming numbers. And she has one scene where she does swim, but there's no swimming, singing musical number like an, a, a typical Esther Williams movie. Uh, she plays the new owner of the baseball team. And I liked her plot line a lot. You know, it, it felt a little forward thinking for me, particularly for the late 1940s, where, you know, the team hates that this woman is in charge. They don't want to listen to her. She's a dame, whatever. But she's actually like way smarter than everyone else. She teaches them how to how to Gene Kelly, how to hit. He's like a t- he's wow. t- struggling at the bat. She's like, oh, you need to stop doing this. Start doing it. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And then he does it and of course it's a home run and it's way like, more advanced than major league i you're stealing my lines are you looking <laughs> over my shoulder i said I, here's what i wrote here it's like major league except instead of turning the female owner into this like horrible shrew she's actually smart and talented and beautiful all at the same time um as far as the technicolor of the movie uh, the movie looked fine i rented this on amazon it looks fine it doesn't look great you know even more than the love witch i did not feel like i was getting the full experience watching it online a part of that is in this case i don't know that the movie has been sort of you know lovingly restored remastered the way it maybe needs to be but the songs are a lot of fun the chemistry between uh frank sinatra and gene kelly and esther williams is really good even though supposedly esther williams did not enjoy making this movie you you can't tell on screen they're all wonderful together so that's take me out to the ball game it is available for rent well musicals are definitely one of those genres that i associate most with technicolor the other would be swashbuckling adventures big adventure sagas uh which i i don't know are always larger than life anyway and the technicolor just works perfectly with that um you know i've talked in the past about the adventures of robin hood with errol flynn and olivia de havilland on this podcast it was a film i grew up watching repeatedly on vhs so I wanted to talk about another film along those grand escapist lines, uh, the 1940 film The Thief of Baghdad, which has like six directors. The three credited ones are Michael Powell, Ludwig, Ludwig Berger, and Tim Whalen. It's an Arabian Nights-inspired saga with a thief and a displaced king, a princess and an evil wizard, flying carpets and magical mechanical horses and curses of blindness and characters who get turned into do- dogs. It's pretty wonderful. Certain aspects of it don't age so well no? when to contemporary eyes. You know, it's a British <laughs> film, though due to the war it was completed in the U.S. And British actors like June Duprez and John Justin, as well as the German Conrad Velt, Veit, excuse me, are playing Arab characters, sometimes in a lot of bronzer. Uh, but other aspects, including the effects, remain wonderful, uh, and the colors are part of that wonderful look. They're magnificent. The blue roses that the princess smells that put her under a spell and make her forget everything. Uh, just the, the the towns, the landscapes, the red loincloth on the genie, who's played by Rex Ingram, who turns from smoke into a giant when released from his bottle after thousands of years. Um, and and is, uh, part of his effects involve some early use of blue screening. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, there's also the golden skin of the young thief Abu, who is decidedly not played by a pallid Englishman in makeup. He is played by the Indian actor Sabu, who was 16 
when The Thief of Baghdad came out, and whose career was sadly cut short by his death at the age of 39. And who's really one of the most naturally charismatic people you'll ever see on screen. And well, one of the things that is so great about this movie is the way in which it seems to understand that as well. He really becomes the unexpected lead after the movie starts with uh, Justin and Dupre, Dupre's and their, like, their romantic you know, love at first sight and they're pining for each other. It basically like ditches them for whole long parts uh, in favor of Abu's adventures, in particular his adventures with the genie. Uh, their dynamic is really great from the moment in which he frees the genie and to uh, him trying to use his three wishes while the genie is, you know, really wanting to get him to use them up and leave him behind. They're really the best parts of the movie. And uh, they look particularly wonderful in those colors. There's something very nostalgic about that color scheme, but also it, it, it makes it emphasizes the fantasy so well. It's if you haven't seen this movie, it is a really just like uncomplicated good time, and it looks beautiful. It's certainly one I've never seen it on the big screen, and it is uh. one that I would love to see on the big screen. But you can find it on Filmstruck, where it is streaming. The Thief of Baghdad. I haven't th- seen it on a big screen or a little screen. I've never seen The Thief of Baghdad, but you're you're selling me on it. It's making me making me feel like uh, I need to. God, uh, if they ever do show it on a big screen somewhere in New York, uh, I'll have to go out of my way to see it. All right, for my second pick, I decided to go with uh, an animated movie because animation was one of the early adopters of Technicolor. And uh, I went with, uh, based on what was available on Netflix, I went with Fantasia which I had not seen in a long time. It's one of Disney's most famous and most unusual projects. It's from 1940. It's directed by too many people to mention. Uh, And it is available, again, on Netflix. It's a series of shorts, most of them not featuring classic Disney animated characters or even stories in some cases, all set to great pieces of classical music. And uh, I know that in 1999, Disney did make a sequel, Fantasia 2000, that followed a... Basically the same format, but it is kind of shocking to watch this movie in 2017 and to see Walt Disney Pictures making basically a borderline avant-garde film in a lot of ways. And just the fact that, you know, Disney made this, this thing, uh, and Disney, what Disney is now and how they define the mainstream. It's like they're, they're not just in the mainstream, they are the mainstream. And I don't mean that insultingly. I think a lot of what Disney does nowadays, they're the best at what they do. You know, there's a reason they're, they're so successful, but here is a movie with, you know, Beethoven and Bach and it it was a huge flop also. How fitting. I mean, for, for a company that often seems so calculating, and I don't even mean that necessarily entirely negatively. Absolutely not. Just like brilliantly calculating. Understand their audience. They know what to make to make them happy and they're, and they make them happy and there, there's nothing wrong with that. But there was this time where it was like, we're going to make an art film. Okay, we're going to make it with classical music. Oh, okay, cool. That sounds interesting. What's the story? No story. <laughs> There's, it's just shorts. Oh, but you'll, you'll use all your characters. Well, we'll use Mickey Mouse and no one else. Okay. Box office. Box goals. office flop. Uh, it is a beautiful movie, though, and the use of color is absolutely incredible. I mean, that's another reason why this is a fun movie to talk about with Technicolor is that if you let yourself, and it is again hard to do at home. This is another. That's like the theme of the show, is it, it, that if you kind of 
put your phone away and your Twitter and your social media and, and let yourself sort of get swept up in it, you can in this very transportive perf- performance. It's impressionistic. It's be- I mean, there are some sequences that are just like, you know, color and light and shapes and some of that, some of the best parts, actually. And the Technicolor is really vital to that. And, uh, you know, I like some segments more than others. And, of course, it does have the classic Sorcerer's Apprentice part with Nicolas Cage, played by Mickey Mouse, and the <laughs> broomsticks. But I think the ones without Mickey Mouse are, you know, some of the other ones are really great, too. But I will say, watching this, uh, and we talked a little bit about this with with the love, which is that, you know, like it, it is weird to do a podcast about streaming movies about Technicolor um, because, you know, watching Fantasia, I was thinking about how, you know, the forget about streaming movies. There was no television when these films were being made and movies were not only the dominant art form, they were this, the- they were a theatrical experience exclusively and that they were doing things that really only worked in that, in that format, and we're, that's how they were designed. And the other interesting thing about Fantasia, besides the Technicolor and the visuals, is it was a groundbreaking movie in terms of sound. It was the first commercial movie ever projected with stereophonic sound. Basically, it was like the originator of surround sound. They, it was it was shown as a roadshow with specially equipped theaters that had speakers all around you, and and the sound was was you know made to work in that way, and so. Unless you have a fabulous home speaker system, which I don't, and I don't think most people do, you know, if you're watching this even on your good television, you're not going to appreciate the sound of the movie. And so, again, I think there's something sort of, you know, I think it's wonderful to be able to have all these movies available to appreciate what they did. But there is something slightly frustrating about it, too, to be able to see Fantasia, but not to be able to appreciate some aspects of it. You have to sort of... I don't know. Yeah. You know, if the future is streaming, which it certainly seems to be, uh, it makes you think more and more about what things that you lose. Yeah. The things that you do lose. So, I mean, it it is great that you can, anytime you want, just sort of click a button and and watch Fantasia, especially in a world where, you know, for a long time it was cut down. There were only, you know, it was because it was so unsuccessful, Disney kept re-releasing it, trying to make back its money and doing it in different ways. They would cut down segments. They would cut segments completely in some cases. So now you have it in sort of a restored form, which is beautiful and wonderful, but you're not, you're still not getting that full experience even at home. But, you know, that's sort of the, that's the, the push and pull of the world we live in. So that is Fantasia. It is available on Netflix, as is Fantasia 2000, if you wanted to watch both of them together. Okie dokie. Well, who knew that April would become like this weird, almost uh, late August-style dumping ground, but there's not a lot going on in the movie theaters these days. Yeah, you know, I just came off of two weeks of grand jury duty, so I have not Congratulations. Been, thank you, writing anything, and I've not been seeing that much either. You haven't missed much. There really hasn't been that much to see. If you were going to be on two weeks of grand jury duty, this was kind of the time to do it, Allison. It was Allison. a great time to do it. There's not a lot going on in the world of movies. Yeah, we're, you know, in a couple of weeks, it's the summer, and there's lots of big movies, and there will be lots to talk about, but it seems like there are uh, the, the studios this sort of this dry period now which is very strange we're going to talk about uh uh, one movie that is already playing in theaters very briefly and uh one movie that is one the really the unofficial or i guess official kickoff of summer movie season 
Although I guess it technically started like two months ago. There's been big movies coming out since February. So who knows? Are there seasons anymore? No. No. Well, there's two seasons now. It's award season and summer. That's it. That the the movie calendar has two seasons. And literally, as soon as the Oscars are over, it's like summer again. Here's King Kong, guys. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Okay. Well, the movie that's out in theaters that we're going to talk about is Free Fire. It's the latest film from Ben Wheatley. A very talented uh, British filmmaker. He's made some very good movies that I know Allison and I are a big fan of. Free Fire is, it certainly has his biggest cast to date. It's got Charlotte Copley, Brie Larson, Army Hammer, Killian Murphy, and more. And the premise is, well, it's basically just a feature-length shootout. It's like these people show up to this warehouse to do this arms deal. It goes bad, and they start shooting at each other, and they don't stop. Uh, the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, got pretty good reviews, and has generally gotten good reviews. Allison, we're Ben Wheatley fans. Sure. It's a good cast. Sure. So I'm going to assume you love this movie. I do not love this movie. Well, neither did I. Yeah. I. You know, it's funny. I do think that Ben Wheatley is a very talented director. And mm-hmm. yet, of his movies, I think there is only one that I full out love, and that is Kill List. Mm-hmm. All of the rest of them have parts that I think are very impressive, yes. but that don't work as a whole for me. Yes. And for Free Fire, I just, this is such, like, it's so Tarantino-esque in a way that I found so tiresome, despite having a whole bunch of actors I like a lot. I just, it's it's not a type of movie that, I just don't want to see a 90s-style Tarantino knockoff right now. Well, but the the difference, too, is, like, even, uh, uh, you know, the, the movies you're comparing it to weren't just one shootout. This movie is almost literally, like, one shootout scene and it's so 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 cartoonish and it goes on for so long that that's sort of the joke is that this gun this this shootout just never ends but i found that so boring after a while and i love you know uh, you know movies about shootouts action all that sort of thing but this movie to me it sort of wore out its welcome by like 45 minutes in i was like okay get it guys yeah, and it has it makes these gestures towards with having Brie Larson as the one woman in the room, like being about like oh men are such like you know uh, idiots, but it doesn't earn that at all. Not in the slightest, Not, and and that she, felt very pandering actually. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, when people have sort of used that to sort of say that's what this movie is about, I thought that's absolutely ridiculous. It's not like she's any smarter or better no, than the guys in this movie, and for all. long stretches she's not around either. Like so. Yeah, it's it's a shame because it is like it's a great cast. I, I mean, and even Charlotte Copley, someone who frequently is like uh, the too big part of a movie, actually yes. fits in perfectly style. This is probably this. Charlotte Copley's best performance, maybe since District Nine. Yes, which is not saying much because he's made some bad movies he and he's given some movies. some crazily bad performances. Yes, but he actually does. You're right. He fits in pretty nicely in this world, and even though he is doing another ridiculous accent. He's fun. Yeah. And uh, Jack Rayner, who is someone who I like a lot and who I think is mm-hmm. going to be a star. Always Army Hammer. Fun Noah Taylor. The cast is great. And it's the problem is not the cast. The problem is it's just like it, to me, it was just too. You have to really be on board with a movie that is just going to be people shooting at each other well, for 90 and minutes. Beyond just that. And so much of this is just like banter. You have to have really crackling dialogue to make this work. And right. this movie does not. It, it does has not. like kind of juvenile insult slinging, which... I mean, when you're kind of counting on that to carry your movie, it doesn't it doesn't work. So disappointing that one free fire. Yes, we are in agreement. We're in the we're in the 
we we are not with the consensus on that one, but we both agree. Um, not huge fans of Free Fire. The other one we're going to mention, which I have seen, Allison has not. I'm seeing She's it about, tomorrow. She, by the time you hear this, she will have seen it, but not while we're recording. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Don't let me down, Matt. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, no, it's a, it's pretty good. It's fun. It's fine. It's the Garden Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Uh, I am kind of curious what you will think about this. I'm curious what the reaction will be in general. Of course, this is the sequel to uh, Marvel movie number 18, and this is number 600. I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've lost count. But it is the second Guardians movie. And it is interesting because the first movie, I think, was the one that was sort of the least anticipated, the least expected, the most obscure characters and so I think it, it benefited from the fact that no one was really expecting much from it. It surprised a lot of people. It certainly surprised me. It was fun. You didn't, you know, it, it has this great favorite. cast. It is my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Okay. Well, I think you'll, I think you're going to enjoy it because I feel like if you enjoyed the first one, you're going to enjoy the second one. It has all the characters. They're still fun. Uh, I thought that Dave Batista as Drax was the real standout this time. He was fun in the first one, and he's even more fun this time. He gets a lot of big moments. He's he's great. I just felt, and it wouldn't shock me if when you see it, you find this as a strength, Allison. There's almost no story in this movie. It is almost literally just like the characters hanging out. And, yeah, that doesn't and, bother me And all. just talking. And uh, basically, there's sort of like this there, – there's, there's a setup – uh, involving the Guardians working for this alien race, and then they're chased across the galaxy by that race, and then they, they crash land on this planet, and then they meet, uh, and I don't think this is a spoiler because it's in the trailer, they meet Kurt Russell, who plays Chris Pratt's Star-Lord's father. And then a lot of it is just them hanging out on the, half of them are hanging out on the planet, half of them are hanging out with uh, the, the the ego, the dad, and that's about it. It takes a long time for anything to emerge that you go, oh, this is what this movie is about. Oh, this is who the villain is. Oh, this is – you know what I mean? So you have to really want to hang out with the characters. I would not have minded a little bit more of a sort of a reason for the characters to be doing what they're doing. But I did enjoy sort of just kind of going along with them in their hanging out and their sort of bouncing off one another and, uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to see, though, whether – I mean, I guess it does still have huge action sequences. I am wondering if people are going to be – they just love the characters so much that they'll be cool with that or if some people are going to be like, could have used a little bit more in the blockbuster. It's a pretty sort of like laid-back blockbuster. That sounds so great to me. Right. Well, we'll see. Maybe <laughs> you might love it. Yeah. Or, I mean, I'd, be very, I'd be very curious to hear what you think. Yeah, so that's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. That opens on May 5th, so I got to see it a little early um, the reviews, by the time you're hearing this, the uh, some of the early reviews, including mine, will be out. So if you want to hear more, read more about it, you can find that online. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on the show by counting down some new releases, giving you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one my list. Allison, I think you should go first this I time. I think I should go first, too. All right, so let's hear some new releases. Okay. Three new releases. Okay, new to Netflix is Documentary Now Season 2. 
if you have not watched Documentary Now, why are you not watching Documentary Now? Why would you not want to watch Fred Armisen and Bill Hader's doc spoof show? This incredibly niche type of comedy, a show that lovingly makes fun of documentaries. Why is anyone paying for this? And how can I make sure they never stop? In season two, the show takes on The Kid Stays in the Picture, The War Room, Salesman, Stop Making Sense, Spalding Gray, and my personal favorite episode, Juan Likes Rice and Chicken, which is uh, a spoof of Jiro Dreams of Sushi and is curiously touching in addition to being funny. So that is on Netflix. New to Shudder is Ghost Watch. Have you heard of this, Matt? I have. I've never seen it, but I know. I tell, tell people about it. Yes, this is pretty interesting. It is. It's the 1992 BBC special that aired once and once only on Halloween night that year and scared the bejesus out of people who thought it was real because it takes the form of a very convincing live special in which an investigation is launched into an apparent haunting in a London terrace house. It's scripted, but looks convincingly TV-esque, including having technical difficulties and real TV news presenters is playing themselves, it predates Paranormal Activity and the Blair Witch Project, and I would say is an influence on both, except it's not widely known about in the U.S. Yeah. It is very scary, uh, and you know it's available for streaming for the first time on Shudder. If you have Shudder, which has been doing some really great stuff recently, it I would definitely recommend you check it out. I, I was really impressed by it. Ghost Watch. And finally, new to Netflix, The Prestige. Oh. Yes. Christopher Nolan's best movie on this. I think we both agree, Matt. I think we do. Uh, Starring Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale as rival magicians. Uh, Send all angry notices about what Christopher Nolan's actual best movie is. Not to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. I don't want to hear it. That is The Prestige. It is on Netflix. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? Well, we have one from Chris who writes, I stumbled upon Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves on Hulu the other day, not seeing it since it came out in 2013. I'm a huge Reichardt fan, but this has to be my favorite of hers. I really enjoy the camera work in this one as she tells so much story with lingering takes and subtle angle adjustments. Refreshing to see a film that isn't bombastic with its direction. Uh, real big fan of the show. Thank you, Chris. I feel like that's a movie I need to give a second chance to. Night Moves. And we have a recommendation from Amanda, who writes, I am a huge horror fan. Absolutely adored the foreign horror episode you covered and picked up a few recs I hadn't even heard of. Thank you. And I'm always looking forward to what independent horror has to offer. One of my favorite indie horror movies of recent years is Digging Up the Marrow, which came out in 2014. I'm a big sucker for found footage horror films, and this edition takes a more documentary-style route. In the movie, filmmaker Adam Green, who is a director of Hatchet and Hatchet 2, sets out to create a documentary about monster-based artwork when he comes across a retired police officer, played by a fantastic, as always, Ray Wise, who claims to be able to prove that monsters are real. This movie pushed all the buttons for me. It's a found footage slash mockumentary film. It has Ray Wise being so paranoid and anxious, it's almost off-putting. And lots of fun cameos from horror icons as Adam Green turns to horror conventions for a lot of his interviews. It's weird, creepy, and fun. And I think that horror fans especially will appreciate this passion project by someone who is genuinely excited by the horror genre. It's currently streaming on Shudder. I highly recommend Digging Up the Marrow for a great little indie horror slow burn. 
Uh, thank you for that, Amanda. I had not even heard of this movie, mm. and it sounds like it pushes all of my buttons as well. Mm-hmm. So I will definitely check that out. Okay, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? You give me number 10. Number 10 on my my list is 13 Reasons Why, oh. the Netflix original series based on the J. Asher YA novel that... I will be honest, I am almost certainly never going to get around to watching (laughs) after all of the kind of coverage about this from both directions about it being so great and so awful. So terrible. I am already exhausted by the basic concept. Isn't that fun how it works? Yes. And and just it sounds like something that I just will never bring myself to watch. So sorry, 13 Reasons Why, but right now you're... (laughs) Punishing media coverage has turned me off from ever watching you. (laughs) Uh, But you can stay on my my list. How is that? All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right, give me three new releases. Okay, first up, new on Amazon Prime is the third season of Bosch. Hey. Thank you. Yeah, the series based on the Michael Connelly <laughs> novels about LAPD detective Harry Bosch. He's played in the show by Titus Welliver. I'm sure I've talked about this show on the podcast before. I'm a big fan. It's it's somewhere between like a Law & Order type procedural show and The Wire. The show is produced by a Wire alum, Eric Overmeyer, and it stars several Wire actors, including Jamie Hector and Lance Reddick. I have not had time to watch season three yet or even start it, really, but uh, seasons one and two are one of the few online shows that, um, that, you know, like shows made specifically for streaming that I've actually binged, where I like watched all 10 episodes in like two or three days. So I'm hoping this one is just as good the exact same way. Uh, that is Bosch. And if you haven't seen it yet, watch Bosch. I just like saying Bosch. 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 It's fun. That's Bosch on Amazon. Uh, uh, while I have not watched any of Bosch season three yet, um, my wife and I are currently in the middle of watching, after a million recommendations from other people, The Great British Baking Show. It is just as charming and entertaining and British as everyone said. This week, Netflix added something called the Great British Baking Show colon Masterclass, which is described as hosts Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood leave the tent and go into the kitchen to put their professional spin on baking techniques used in the show. Uh, That sounds delightful. And since I am a chef now, an expert. Yes, I feel like I, I could use some of this. Uh, so uh, I figured people do know and they love the Great British Baking Show. They may want to know that there's this sort of, I guess, spinoff series that is now on Netflix as well. The Great British Baking Show Masterclass. Finally, available on Tubi TV is the Coen Brothers version of True Grit, a remake of the old John Wayne film based on the 1968 novel about aging U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn. The Coens cast the dude, Jeff Bridges, as their rooster. And it is yet another in Bridges' seemingly endless run of charmingly ornery old lawmen. <laughs> and the movie also has great performances for Matt Damon, Josh Brolin, and a very young Haley Steinfeld. It's another Coen Brothers winner from recent years. Maybe not their best movie uh, recently, but that's a, that's a hard bar because they've been making great films in the last decade. So that's True Grit, available on Tubi TV. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Madeline in Norman, Oklahoma. Madeline writes, I wanted to recommend Door, D-O-R, a 2006 Indian movie currently available on iTunes. It's a sweet, complex look at the development of a friendship between two young women from very different backgrounds. One of them needs something from the other, 
And for a long time, it's a movie about a friendship based on false pretenses, but the sincerity of their friendship shines through all of that, and they form a real connection with each other. Often, movies that give space over to women's friendships seem to portray that friendship as meaningful only in dysfunction, but Door takes a very different approach. So that is Door, which is available on iTunes from Madeline. Thank you, Madeline. And next, we've got a recommendation from John. John writes, I recently watched the 2014 documentary The Dog about John Wojtowicz, the inspiration for Dog Day Afternoon. He's a fascinating figure, a self-proclaimed pervert who seems to have been waiting a long time for this kind of showcase, even with the notoriety that came from being the subject that inspired the Sidney Lumet classic. He's a compelling subject, and the film roots him amidst the gay rights movement of the late 60s and early 70s. All in all, this turned out to be a great, uh, entertaining, and poignant look at a real story and the figures behind one of the greatest movies ever made. It's currently available on Hulu. So that's The Dog, and that came from John. Thank you, John. Okay, and give me one from your my list. You gave me number eight. And number eight on my my list is Twin Peaks, which I will confess, I have tried to watch and never really got sucked into. <laughs> and with the, you know, like my wife and I tried to, we were like, we... Uh, at one point in the last, I guess, decade, at some point we were like, oh, Twin Peaks, we, we've never seen it. Let's try it. And I think we got three episodes in and we were like, nah. So when the show is coming back, I added it to my, oh, my list. And I was like, maybe I'll, this is the, now is the time. <laughs> and I rewatched the pilot. Mm-hmm. I thought it was okay, but I have, uh, I have not watched the second episode yet. Are you okay? You're done hyperventilating? I'm fine. I'm fine. You're just judging me silently now? Yeah, you know, as always. What else is new? <laughs> Fair point. Okay, let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. We have three interesting recent movies. Our first one will be available on Netflix starting on April 28th. It's a documentary. Uh, it was at the Sundance Film Festival this year where it was acquired by Netflix. It is Casting Jean Benet, directed by Kitty Green. I'll read you the plot description, which I pulled from IMDb. The unsolved death of six-year-old American beauty queen Jean Benet Ramsey remains the world's most sensational child murder case. Over 15 months, responses, reflections, and performances were elicited from the Ramsey's Colorado hometown community, creating a bold work of art from the collective memories and mythologies the crime inspired. Have you seen this one yet, Allison? I have not. I have a screener, and I've been very curious about it. Yeah, me too. It uh, got very good reviews at Sundance. It sounds fascinating. There's a lot we could talk about here. Um, So that is option number one, casting Jean Benet, and that will be available on Netflix starting on April 28th. Option number two is a movie that is available for rent right now. It is Neruda. This is one of two movies that the Chilean director Pablo Lorraine had out last year. The other was the was Jackie, his English language debut, which made a bigger splash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neruda uh, is about um, Pablo Neruda, uh, as the title would imply, but also about the uh, police chief um, Oscar. I don't know how to say that. Pelinchuno. 
played by Gael Garcia Bernal, who was a bit more of the main character from what I've read about this movie. I haven't seen it yet. It is basically about this time in Pablo Neruda's life in which he is both a very popular poet and a senator. And after he denounces the president, he is threatened with arrest and goes underground. And uh, the, this police, uh, police officer has to chase him down. And from what I've heard about this movie, it in some ways like uh, plays with noir conventions. It's almost like mm-hmm. a detective story in yeah. some ways. I've heard very good things about it. It's not one Me that too. I was able to see. Me and too. And I would love to see it. Me too. So that is Neruda, your second option. It is available for rent. Okay, option number three is a little bit uh, of a bigger movie than we sometimes do, but it's, again, it's another movie that we both missed. We did both miss it. And we want to see, and it is Split, which is currently available for Rent. This is the latest film from M. Night Shyamalan. It stars James McAvoy, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Betty Buckley. And uh, this, I guess you... Uh, I. I don't want to call it a comeback, as the song says, but it really was for M. Night Shyamalan. It got, this movie got good reviews, and it made a lot of money. It was a hit. Made $137 million in the U.S. It is currently the seventh biggest movie of the year at the box office. It made more money than Fifty Shades Darker and Power Rangers. That's Im- really impressive. It is pretty impressive. The plot description is three girls are kidnapped by a man with a diagnosed 23 distinct personalities. That would be McAvoy. They must try to escape before the apparent emergence of a frightful new 24th. Um, I should point out, this movie also has like a $9 million budget, which is considerably less than those other movies you point out. It's yes. a Bloomhouse movie. Yes. is part of their huge success so far this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. And I like it. And many people, uh, you know, sort of, Hailed it as a return to form after a long period in the, I guess, the creative desert. He was working that whole time, but he's made some craptacular movies mm-hmm. as M. Night Shyamalan. But he, I find him to be one of the most interesting filmmakers around. Even when he's making bad movies, I find him a fascinating figure. Certainly. So and I don't, he finds himself a fascinating I find figure. him almost as fascinating <laughs> as he finds himself. So he would, I think, perhaps give us a lot to talk about. Or yeah. we could maybe do, I don't know if there's enough movies, but I feel like movies about multiple personality, if there are enough out there. Right. Given how I, uh, contested they are. In and how yes, medically yes. accurate they are, I think, yes. could also give us a lot to talk about. So that's option three, Split which is available right now for rent. Okay, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at the newly redesigned filmspottingsvu.com. Oh, it looks so nice. It looks nice and clean. Yes. Uh, your vote must be received by Monday, May 1st at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And also on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, May 9th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and you can also follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.
Okay, so is there any song that you feel very strongly about? I like Witchy Woman. Witchy Woman? You know, Witchy Woman. Oh, Witchy Woman. Ah, oh, Witchy Woman. 